Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. So what do you think? Should medical marijuana be legal? How about for recreational use? The cannabis movement is quickly becoming an industry as more and more states legalize. Well, it's always been an industry, but more of an accepted legal industry. Advocates tout a huge variety of health benefits. Research indicates there's certainly some merit to their claims. But the federal government still seems intent on enforcing prohibition. Is there room for a legal cannabis industry, mainstream legal cannabis industry? Is it time for Americans to accept marijuana as beneficial and normal? Our guest, Pamela Epstein, is a fearless advocate for legalization and local cannabis businesses. She's the founder of Greenwise Consulting, a full-service cannabis firm providing legal and business development services for every facet of the growing cannabis industry. She's here to share with us the current situation with legal marijuana and what the future holds for the legal cannabis industry. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Pamela. So excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's such an exciting time for the cannabis movement. It certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, So I know your involvement with cannabis is personal, and I love your story. Please share it with the audience and how it led you to to start Greenwise Consulting. Yeah, I... um Cannabis is very personal to me. I suffered from debilitating migraines most of my life, uh, from when I was a young child all the way through college and law school. And um, like most useful or useful college experiences, I had indulged in smoking cannabis while I was in college. And quite honestly, that was the best time academically for me. in a large part, retro or looking back, in retrospect, it's because I wasn't suffering with as many migraines during that period. And that's because I was fortunate enough to be living in San Francisco and practicing law uh, during uh, the time where cannabis was legal in California and in San Francisco was so well pronounced that the neurologist that I had found after being in and out of the hospital uh, for upwards of two to three times a month uh, with debilitating migraines, trying to work to meet my billable hours, I had come to find that I had an endocannabinoid system. And I was like, what is that? Uh, right? Most people don't know. And, and one of the first signs of an endocannabinoid deficiency was migraines. And so my neurologist had put me on a regimen of a cannabinoid therapy, high CBDs, um, with THC at night to sort of help make sure that I was getting enough restful sleep. And lo and behold, instead of having a standing prescription for 50 to 100 pills of of Vicodin a month, um, I was seeing substantial uh, benefits. I was having less migraine days. And the discussion that was on the table about disability all of a sudden went away, and I was able to use my brain that I had invested so much time and money into um, because it wasn't failing me. It wasn't 
that I had these debilitating headaches that took me out for the better part of two days where I couldn't be involved in my life. And so with that, um, I had back my faculties and unfortunately decided to leave, or fortunately I should say, decided to leave the position that I was at doing environmental work and go to Arizona um, to be with family and get all of my house in order. And I was faced with this very real issue of becoming a criminal. And that was because I wasn't going to take the opiates across state lines. I had no problem. But the teachers I had come to rely on as medication were no longer available to me. And if I took them on the airplane or in the car, then I was committing a crime. And that was a real difficult confrontation for somebody who is an officer of the court. And so I started to advocate for myself in Arizona, started to help Arizona businesses um, come online and be able to expand product and service the market. And thus, GreenWise Consulting was born. And so you did this based in Arizona? Yes, I started in Arizona. And so marijuana was not legal at that time then? In 2010, they were fighting um, the battles with the then attorney general who wanted to dismantle the program or not let the program get started. You had sort of this air of collectives while full-scale licensed operators were trying to move through the process. It was very difficult. And I really learned how to navigate those waters of how do you have a discussion with the locality? How do you have a discussion with the state about implementing these programs? Well, as a fellow attorney, which I'm a non-practicing attorney, I can absolutely understand your dilemma. Number one, you're an officer of the court. Number two, um, from a, a maybe from a moral, uh, ethical position, personally, you knew that this medicine was something that you had come to rely on, and you weren't taking it recreational as fun or a drug or whatever. Um, but as an officer of the court, you could lose your mm-hmm. livelihood. You could lose your license. It could ruin your profession and, and the investment that you made in that education. So that was a real dilemma, no doubt. Yeah, it, it was very upsetting and, and really galvanized me to take action and to understand truly what it is when the system fails you. And that was that was migraines. And look, disability was very upsetting to me. But then when you look at cases like little Charlotte Figgy, who it was a decision on whether you died or didn't, and the, and the government was standing in the way, that really is when I made a decisive career decision to move away from what I knew and into something that was more unknown. Congratulations. It must have been petrifying. I mean, on the one hand, energizing and passionate, right? And on the other hand, just had no idea what was going to happen because at any moment um, somebody could turn on you. Right. Uh, you didn't know there wasn't as much protection. The the robust case law that we have now that protects attorneys in this space, um, Governor Brown signed that bill, and I apologize, it is escaping me into law earlier, uh, or late last year, I should say, um, that gave protection for lawyers to be able to provide the advice to those that are in this space who desperately need it, right? Those that are good operators that want to follow the, the rules, they need to understand what 
those rules are. And since it is a confluence of different agencies coming together to try to get this program off the ground, it is very difficult. And they need good stewardship. They need good legal counsel. And um, you're not going to get good lawyers if you don't give them protection. So I think it all stems from, and um, this is totally my opinion, but there's this, this conversation or argument between medicine and drugs and another argument between, you know, ourselves as individuals and our right to uh, make decisions for ourselves and the government acting as our parent telling us what we can or cannot do. So let's take the first question, you know, medicine versus drugs. The government seems to think that it can decide define, label what is actually a medicine and what is a drug, and then decide what's legal and not legal. Can you speak to that? And what are your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, I think that the government is acting both out of a sense of fear and out of a sense of faith saving. Um, I think the D.A.R.E. program and the war on drugs was a complete and utter failure. I think the writing is on the wall. We have more people in prison because of it. We have more families torn apart. We have more Americans not acting in their best interest because of it. And that's a hard pill to swallow. I think anybody, we're all human, don't like to be seen as making mistakes. Well, the war on drugs, um, I guess it depends on perspectives, but I think it was an absolute utter success for those that wanted to uh, for the system that wanted to make money and wanted to right. put fear in uh, in society that says, you know, it's illegal to do this, and if you get caught, this, these are the consequences. And the amount of money that goes into that whole industry, and it is an industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Just like the person. It's huge. So from that perspective, it's an utter success. From well, from that perspective, perspective yes. Um, but I think from the inequality that came from it, from the misinformation and all of those that could have been helped that weren't, because if we're looking at it like a drug, right, it's a, it's a Schedule One substance, it's right up there with heroin and opium, it is actually has a greater uh, chance of abuse and addiction in accordance with our federal government and how they set out uh, the the Controlled Substances Act than cocaine does. Um, and so from, from that perspective, I always come back to it as hard to admit a wrong. And for government, it is even harder. Um, and so they're still digging in their heels. I think mm. that Sessions' rescinding of the Cole memo is very clear on that point. Um, in his one-page memo that has undone years of, of, you know, pragmatic policy, he wants to take us back to the 1980s, that anything done post-1980 was not, uh, in a sense, authorized. So we're still fighting that, that battle. I think uh, we're in a different place. It was a groundswelling of support that I both expected and yet was still pleasantly surprised by that came out very much against that action. And so if that was the catalyst that was needed to really have on the ground discussions at the federal level to really reach the fever pitch that it takes 
for federal government action to occur, then I think history will look back at that moment as a defining moment. I, I look at it the same way that from an environmentalist, I looked at issue, issues like Three Mile Island, right? Like that galvanized us to get the, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and all of that rhetoric that we have. It, it took that sort of force to make us recognize that there was an issue, and if the rescinding of the Cole memo was that, then I, you know, three a year from now or three to four years from now, it will be that defining moment. And, and it seems like the cat's already out of the bag. Like, how do you put the genie back in the bottle at this point? Right? It's a waste of funds if if sessions were to go after this. Um, I think that it was very clear when the mayor of Colorado came, or the governor of Colorado came out, I'm sorry, and said, look, we've got such an invested program and money that whether or not I voted for legalization, I support the will of the voters in my state. And in very short order after Sessions' announcement, you had Vermont come online and legalize cannabis without a voter initiative. So it hasn't seemed to stymie the train, as you said, that's already left the station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thankfully for that. And also it's very interesting from an administration policy perspective how pro-state rights they are. Mm-hmm. But with this issue, Sessions came out and said, no, the feds know better, right? Uh, yeah. It's, it's to the state an egregious uh, betrayal of that statement, right? I, I think it is quintessential to say if you believe in states' rights, this is, in fact, a state right. It is how you police governance in the four corners of your state. You don't get much clearer than how you deal with cannabis policy. Very interesting. So did that make your job – well, let's talk about what you do. In, in, in the field of um, cannabis and your job and Green Wise Consulting. You help your clients from a legal perspective and a business development perspective in this niche. Yeah, we've been able to really immerse ourselves, and by that I mean myself and all of the members of the GreenWise team, in the policies and procedures as they're developing. Um, our clients uh, enjoy the benefit of myself and the firm having served as special city attorney for the city of Hollister on cannabis-related items. So we really can approach the conversation from a different from a different perspective, I can walk into a city or a county and say, I understand, I truly understand how difficult it is for you to regulate this type of issue. I understand that you have to go through budget and you have to assign new jobs and new roles and responsibilities for those people who are serving in civil service who thought they may never have to deal with this issue or came to civil service to deal with this issue because they had a negative um, past experience with that. So I can really come to the table and have that conversation because I've been on the other side. And that's such a benefit for our clients. They can really truly understand the value of how difficult regulation can be and be a lightning rod or a touchstone for information. If they're a cultivator, they can provide 
the devil in the details about how this is going to help revitalize an ag community or value add to an existing ag community and why it's well suited to go there. If they're a distributor and we represent them, they can bring that information to the table because sometimes it's more about the way that you provide information than the content of that information, especially when you're dealing with such a controversial topic. So from a cannabis business perspective, what are the biggest challenges would you say today that they're facing? Whew, there's a litany of them. Um, I would say first and foremost is capitalization and opportunity. Uh, it is highly competitive marketplace now. I think we know that this industry is going to outgrow some of the largest industries in very short order. I think it's set to double the amount of money that the NFL brings in, speaking coming off of the Super Bowl weekend, um, in, in the next year. Like it's just on par to have these very high valuations which make the capital difficult because as we've seen, the green rush is coming. That means property values go up. It means that cities and counties are looking for you to have higher forms of capitalization. The other part and parcel of that is opportunity. Um, as these jurisdictions come online, if we're going to look at California specifically, it is a race to see whether or not you can find property, whether or not you have um, the capitalization, and then whether or not you're set up for success and compliance and truly understanding the road that you have to traverse. That whereas I am incredibly honored um, and worked very hard with my team to be able to have this 99% success rate that we are so proud of, that success rate is very difficult to maintain. And what people need to understand is with more competition, it will be harder. And the fact that getting your permit, that initial regulatory permit from the local level is step one in a long, arduous process that if you are a public-facing entity, and by this I'm talking mainly about um, those that are interested in opening a dispensary, either a storefront or a retail, typically there are more intense land use entitlements that you must go through after securing your initial regulatory permit. And by that I mean a conditional use permit process. So even if the jurisdiction likes what we've produced, that they say you are in the best position to open up a cannabis dispensary, you would still need to go through a conditional use permit process. And if you don't do good outward engagement with your community, a community can stop your project. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers to entry. Hmm. Do you Is, specialize? In, in California mostly or Arizona or all over the country? We generally focus our practice in California. California is so dynamic with uh, the MAUCRSA uh, coming online as of January 1 and the rest of the local jurisdictions. There's 482 cities and 58 counties in the great state of California. They all are like their own unique snowflake uh, in a blizzard and they are all tracking at different points in time. But we still do have some residual clients in Arizona that I, um, that I started with uh, and that deserve just as much attention. And as California becomes the standard as it has 
so many other times with so many other industries. I hope that we can expand um, and service the larger market across the U.S. My friends and contacts that I have in California that are in the cannabis industry speak about how it seems like the big money is coming to California, especially the Canadian companies. Uh, has that been your experience? Yeah, we see a lot of uh, bigger players coming into the scene. I think that uh, that was really the case kind of towards the end of December, the beginning of January with the sessions announcement. We saw a little bit of the pendulum swing back, but now I'm starting to see a lot more investment dollars, specifically Canadian dollars coming in and wanting to establish a presence in the U.S. and um, doing so here in California. Because California was the first state in the union and the country, really, to decriminalize cannabis and then legalize medical and then legalize recreation. So they've been ahead of the curve in front of all the other states, right? Uh, we've been ahead of a curve in some respects. I think that we started the movement with uh, Proposition 215 and the decriminalization. We you know, then had collectives through SB 420, but it really took states such as Colorado and Arizona and Washington and Oregon to kind of come online and, and really start to show what state regulation was. And then California and those three lowly uh, state legislators came together, Representative Wood, uh, Senator McGuire, and uh, Rob Bonta, to bring us MRSA back in 2015, which really then put us back in the driver's seat of, you know, forward-thinking cannabis policy, um, and really taking heed of the directions of the Cole Memo to have a robustly regulated uh, state-run system. Well, really, you know, my hat's off to those who have gone into the cannabis business uh, in anywhere, especially California, and, and to do business, right, to be successful in business, you need to understand the box that you're working with, the rules that you're working with, the regulations that you're working with. And with, with cannabis, not only has there been uh, no conformity in terms of the local laws and the state laws and the national laws, Banking is an issue. Dealing with with money is an issue. Banking is an issue. Uh, there's so many hurdles, issues that a business owner has to confront if they decide to go into this business. Uh, how do you how do you counsel someone? I mean, do you try to talk? Who says you know? If I called you up and I said, hey, you know what? I want to open up a business in California, a cannabis business. What do you think? Do you advise them <laughs> against it? Um. I would ask them really what their – I like to start off with clients by asking them what their passion is. What, what is driving you to do cannabis, right? Is this a money play or is this sort of a passion project? Did this come from somewhere? Why are you looking at a dispensary? What is it that you're trying to gain? And trying to understand from their perspective what they're, what they're hoping to get out of it so that when we start putting pen to paper and talk about all the challenges, that they're prepared for that or they're acknowledging the difficulty. Because I think 
that is quintessentially one of the most difficult things about a blossoming industry is that people see excitement, they see change, they see possibility, and you really have to ground that with what is it going to take to be successful. What are the challenges that you can expect, and are you ready with a plan to overcome them? And really not biting off more than you can chew. If you are a great manufacturer, be a great manufacturer. You don't have to be your own distributor. You don't have to be your own cultivator. You don't have to be your own direct-to-market provider, direct-to-consumer provider. So I think that always starts with a conversation of, what are you passionate about and why? Hmm. Well said, because really, it's, if you're just doing it for money, aren't there other ways of making a living that might be a little bit easier or other industries to work in that doesn't have so many hurdles and restrictions? And um... Right, and what is your ROI expected on gaining this money? If you're putting in your life savings, do you expect to see it back in six or eight months? If you're not just investing in an already operational facility, you're not going to see that ROI for the better part of two to three years. And is that something that you can live with? Because as we just talked about, if you're interested in opening a dispensary, you got to get through the regulatory permit process, the entitlement process. And if you're not up and running by July 1, you then have to get your state permit process before you can operate. So it's knowing the deadlines and the timeline in order to get you operational as part of that initial discussion. I would never tell somebody no. I would mm-hmm. just give them all of the tools that they need to make the best decision for them. So shifting the conversation a little bit to other drugs that are out there besides cannabis, <clears throat> is your, what is your opinion regarding uh, like the other illegal drugs that may or may not have a medicinal quality to them. Let's say it's more recreational. Do you have an opinion? Uh, are you talking about the, the rest of the drugs contained in the Controlled Substances Act or uranium yeah. and hemp? Um, I think that our country has been quite prudish with how drugs can be used um, in a beneficial way, uh, more so than other countries. And I think any time you make something illicit, you're giving it a certain perception uh, that it's rebellious or fun to do it. I think anything done in excess is bad. Mm -hmm. Too much chocolate is bad. Having too much Tylenol can kill you and your liver. So if we really want to have an open discussion in this country about whether or not any drug along the Controlled Substances Act has value, um, if it's used correctly and with education, I don't see the harm in that. I see that when I look back at a physician's desk reference that they the good old standard for cough medicine used to have enough alcohol, cannabis, and chloroform in it to put down a horse. But that's what we were using it for because these were the ingredients that were readily available and came from the earth before we started making synthetic medication. So it may be time for us to go back and really look at our drug policy. And 
it's not just cannabis. Well, from a recreational perspective, you know, you've got all these different drugs in, in the act that you're speaking of, but there are also other drugs that are that are listed in that act that do have medicinal qualities to them. Uh, there are a lot of studies that are being done, and maybe a lot is not the right word. There's some studies being done regarding the medicinal value of mushrooms, um, mm-hmm. psychedelic mushrooms. There are other drugs that are used around the world that are legal that actually help with Oh, uh, heroin addiction with a lot of afflictions that people have and in this country because it's part of the act, right? It's legal and you can go to prison for a very long time for having it or, or um, taking it, which just isn't right. It, it's such a, I think there's such a puritanical approach to our drug policy. <laughs> Well, it, it just goes against what we stand for at its core, right? You know, mm-hmm. the right to, um, like, do I have... The freedom of choice that we enjoy in this country, that we exert our will onto other countries to protect. Yeah, yeah exactly. it, it definitely does. What happened at the beginning of the year with Sessions was undemocratic. It was un-American. It was telling nearly more than half of the country and half of the states that subscribe to the philosophy of a democratic society that their opinions don't matter, that their vote didn't matter, that that what they choose for their health and safety didn't matter. That's what happened with that memo. And that's what I hope that that history will show and that Jeff Sessions one day will have to apologize for, that he took his personal opinions, personal opinions, and turned them into law, which is the exact polar opposite of what he is supposed to do as the steward of the Attorney General of the United States. That is my personal opinion. And from a policy perspective, speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, Forget the administration, forget him speaking for Trump. There are so many other issues that he has spoken about, state rights, state rights, state rights. He said it during the Senate confirmation hearing that he purposed that he would not attack cannabis policy. He lied. He lied. He lied. What do you think uh, the pharmaceutical, the FDA – where do they play with uh, the, I'm not a lost words here, the restriction, the prohibition of these drugs? What part do they play, do you think? I'd like to think of our pharmaceutical industry as not uh, callous operators with the health and safety and welfare of the U.S. citizens. Um, but money drives a lot of things. I think that at such time, the federal government lifts its stranglehold on the industry. Um, absolutely. We will see those come in as big players. I think GW Pharmaceuticals and Epidiolex coming out with the CBD anti-seizure medication. I think they're waiting in the wings. I think for them, it's money well spent in either direction. Well, because if it's illegal, then they've got a hold on the market because they can exactly. make money. And if it's made 
if it's made schedule, legal. if it's reduced down to schedule two or schedule three and you need a pharmacist or a doctor to write it and you have to pick it up at a traditional pharmacy, that works for them as well. I think that's the real rub of a, of a conversation regarding descheduling versus deregulation or rescheduling versus deregulation, it's that conundrum. It's that all of these people that have put their livelihoods and have mom-and-pop dispensaries that have done well, that have serviced um, those people that they're very close to, can be put out of business very quickly if the pharmaceutical companies want to jump in and influence a rescheduling versus a deregulation. And so the deregulation is what exactly versus a descheduling? Deregulation would be, uh, we've lost the call memo, but would be that it is taken completely out of the Controlled Substances Act and possibly left to the states. Um, to administer what would go nicely there is if we had a call-out or an exception to the CSA that allowed for those that, again, this was something that was easier once we had the call memo that followed the process and procedures of the call memo would then not be federally illegal, which would give the states that weren't yet ready time to come on board. Because what we don't want to happen is see full-blown deregulation, have states not be ready with an implemented program, and a resurgence of the black market without any real protection, right? That would be the argument on the other side. So I deregulation is taking it out of the Controlled Substances Act completely and regulating it in some other mechanism. Because if you don't deschedule all the way down, if you deschedule and you put it in uh, Schedule 2 or Schedule 3, that still requires a doctor's prescription. So if you're considering it medical, and since we now have a robust medical and legal program, that will make things a little bit more vexing, or you treat it simply like you would alcohol, and that's left up to the states um, for each state to have their own policies. It's why we still have blue sky laws in places like Philadelphia. Okay. Can you, can you summarize the ideal, what would be absolutely ideal for the free market for the state rights? What it it's to deregulate and leave it up to the states. Leave it up okay. to their Tenth Amendment powers that, that this is their police power in order to regulate within the four corners of their jurisdiction as they see fit. As long as they are meeting certain principles laid out by the federal government, those were very nicely done in the Cole Memo, right? We want to prevent diversion. We want to ensure that you're robustly regulated so we can borrow from that language that we're not feeding into the cartels. All of that language was very important and our core constructs that we would want to see moving forward. But if okay. the federal government were to lift this, federal illegality, that would cure a lot of the banking issues that you mentioned, um, which I think it is very important, as always, to point out that there are banking options. They are just very complex and difficult, but I don't see the state banks of California, Arizona, Washington, Oregon, or any of the other 30 jurisdictions where they bring in tax dollars, commingle it with their general funds, and their bank accounts are not being closed. 
It really is that it is such an arduous process under the FinCEN guidelines to be able to bank with this industry that unless you are a state or an state agency, it becomes less desirable to do so. So the mom-and-pop operations are going to have a much more difficult time um, obtaining banking. But it is not impossible because otherwise when Arizona took in $1.5 million for their application fees and put it into the bank, it did not see the Bank of Arizona getting shut down and having its assets frozen. Hmm. Pamela, what a mess. <laughs> it's an enjoyable a mess. mess, though. It's, it's a mess that we're all in together. And I think that it has galvanized and been able to cross the aisle. And it's become really this issue of, well, I may not believe in it, but my voters do, but my electorate does. But I have people in my uh, – that I am responsible for as a legislator to protect and, and advance that I really see it as an opportunity for democracy to do what it's supposed to do. Agreed and well said and very well said. And I believe that Jeff Sessions is absolutely in the minority if, these, if for whatever reason it was regulated and taken away from the state, I think then you will truly see rioting in the streets. So many people have been impacted in a positive way with medicinal cannabis. And I don't think that that people would sit down and stay at home if that was taken away from them. There are just too many, too many lives that have been impacted. And if it's not personal, it's somebody that, that they know, right? And I think it's, um, it's just a little too late. And I really would like to see what you said, right? The, the entrepreneur, the marketplace, the little guy have an opportunity to bring value to the marketplace because if it's if they're not allowed to then I think you're going to see less creativity you're going to see big pharma become bigger right mm -hmm. um, it, it's I just would love to see the, the little guy uh, have success in this space especially because we're really built on the backs of that right like I, I exist today I'm allowed to have a business today because other people went to jail and stood mm -hmm. up for me. And it is, it is one of the most important things for me personally to crusade and ensure that we are able to have a full-scale industry, right? Just like, just like any other industry where you have, you know, small operations, small farms, small, um, very holistically run businesses all the way up to, you know, Budweiser or mm -hmm. conglomerate. Like you mm -hmm. can have an industry that really touches along that entire continuum, and cannabis should be one of those because we started off with nobody wanting to accept the challenge, that accepting the challenge meant that you could go to jail, that you could have your entire family and your livelihood taken away from you simply by providing a service because it was so important. And I don't want us to lose that spirit of what galvanized this industry to where we are today. It would be a, a true loss. 
I don't know how many people are sitting in prison today for cannabis use and distribution, but I have no doubt it's in the thousands and thousands and thousands. In one state, you can use and buy, and in another state, you go to prison. It's insane. It's a crazy world. I think it's why the Arizona legalization effort failed, and rightfully so. Um, That effort in um, Arizona, which was the only one of the legalization, the recreational uh, initiative to fail last November, was because it had no social justice. It was only for industry. And that's something that as an industry we need to protect and be aware of and good on the voters of Arizona for seeing it. You have to have the social justice part. You have to be able to go back and fix the prior wrongs and not just advance big business. It's, it's got to still have a heart that's important. And I think that was a lesson that we learned from that one initiative. Speak to the social justice part. It's where, um, like in Proposition 64, which is now part of the MAUCRSA, or for those that don't know, the Medicinal Adult Use Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act. It's a mouthful. Um, It has specific provisions to allow for those that have cannabis crimes to still be part of cannabis businesses. So it has a rehabilitation program. It has a social justice and social equity so that we're not Xing out those that we stood on the backs of to get here because there are certain um, provisions most of the time that run in these cities and counties and at the state level that say if you have a felony in your past or a drug-related misdemeanor, you can't be involved in the industry. It makes sense, right? We want to make sure that an industry that's already controversial and marred in this, you know, nefarious approach has um, good actors in it. But as you said, sometimes people were, for no other reason than carrying a joint, have a drug-related misdemeanor in their record that would preclude them from being part of the industry that they helped build. So there are rehabilitation programs and appeals that are built into our um, regulatory process, and that was because Prop 64 had that language specifically built into it. It was one of the glaring omissions out of the Arizona initiative. Pamela, let our audience know how they can contact you directly. I so respect the work that you're doing. I love your story. I love how uh, what seemed to be uh, a burden in your life became your life's work and mission and passion. And you're at the cutting edge, right? What an exciting place to be and how exciting. Hopefully, we can look back five, ten years from now and say, wow, it turned out the right way, right? It turned out ideal. I hope so. I mean, this is such a pleasure. I enjoy what I do every day that I do it, and and that is a blessing, right? You enjoy what you do. You don't work a day in your life. Um, I will tell you sometimes it's very stressful, but I enjoy it. Um, (laughs) People can reach us. They can go to our website, which is www.gwcpro.com. Um, they can reach out to uh, the office. 
Um, they can reach me via email. It's just Pamela at GWCPRO.com, and I would welcome anybody to do so. Uh, I know there's great potential operators and existing operators out there that could use uh, some legal or business development advice, and, and we'd be open and excited to have that conversation with you. Excellent, and we will also post uh, the downloaded copy of the podcast on Living Wealthy Radio and also have your contact information. And really, it's a pleasure having you on Living Wealthy Radio. If at any time in the future there are any developments that you'd like to share with our audience, you're always welcome back. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope we have some exciting reports coming out of the federal government later this year. I hope so as well. And best of luck to you and your clients, Pamela. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.